0: Our scripture is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 25 to 30, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I, shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. The servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Dear friends of God, at the end of the parable, the king asks the servant, Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And by the time we get to this question, we know the answer is yes. Yes. I should have had mercy on my fellow servant just as you, O king, had mercy on me. What was I thinking? We We want that servant to say, what was I thinking? Let me order that servant released from prison. And let's, let's get this right again. That's what the wicked servant should have said. And by extension, we know that the answer to that question is yes. Yes, I should have mercy on others as God has had mercy on me. I don't want to be like that unmerciful servant. I don't want to be so hard-hearted and ultimately imprisoned and tortured by, by this unforgivingness, physically and emotionally, like he was. In more positive terms, we we say, yes, I know as a follower follower of Jesus, I always pay mercy forward. I don't just say, thank you to God for forgiveness, and I sing a happy song, and, and praise of God for, for the gospel, for forgiveness, and the assurance of pardon that I get every week, and then just leave it at that. I go and do likewise. I act in the same forgiving ways as the God who has forgiven me. I go and... and, and and do what Jesus has done for me. I, I transform my relationships through forgiveness. I, Jesus came to transform our world. And, and showing forgiveness and mercy helps spread that, that transformation in the best way. And he calls us, dis, his disciples to a life marked by mercy. By forgiveness. Is that you? Is that me? Well, our problem is that we, we don't want to live that way because it's hard. When someone hurts us, we want to hurt back. When, when someone wrongs us, we like that role of victim. There's some power there. When someone backstabs or cheats us, we want to nurse our pain and bitterness and think that we're preserving our sense of self-worth that way. We we have a hard time with forgiveness. American pastor William Willimon tells of watching an interview of a couple on the news the day after the horror of September 11th, when two airplanes smashed into the World Trade Center in New York City, killing thousands of people. And this couple was on the street before the wreckage of Ground Zero. And obviously distraught in grief. Their beloved daughter had perished in that cataclysm. Through tears they shared their grief with the reporter. And that reporter standing there didn't know what to do. So he kind of stammered a few words and he said, well, I know that you'll be able to go to your place of worship this weekend and 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 there maybe you'll find some consolation in your faith. And the grieving mother replied, "No, we won't be going to our place of worship this weekend because we're Christians and we know that Jesus com- what Jesus commands about forgiveness and frankly, we're not ready for that yet. It'll be some time before we want to be with Jesus." And that kind of sums it up for us. This couple knows, really knows, what being a follower of Jesus looks like. They probably heard it all their life. They probably know this, they know this parable. They probably heard it in Sunday school when they were growing up. We certainly wouldn't expect them to forgive the next day this unspeakable crime against them. But they knew what Jesus was calling them to do And in real life, that's just plain hard when this happens to you. How do you forgive such a heinous act that took away so much? Well, you stay away from Jesus for a while as a way of getting out of that calling. Our parable outlines two ways of trying to get out of that calling. The calling of Jesus' call to forgive your neighbor from your heart. One way is to set limits on forgiveness. That's what Peter was trying to do. He asked Jesus, how many times, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Uh, Up to seven times? Peter thought he was being generous. Peter thought he was going over the top here. I mean, after all, all the rabbis of his day said, you just have to forgive three times. Three times. You forgive. And on the fourth offense, you don't have to. You can just cut them off. You don't have to forgive. And Peter understood enough of Jesus. He's been around him long enough to realize that Jesus is calling them to forgive those who sin against them and to forgive them a lot. So he doubled the requirement and he added an extra one just for fun or for good measure. I don't know. It's pretty awesome. Nobody, nobody forgives seven times. You know, we're, we're, his followers would be marked by a novel kind of mercy. Imagine the tagline they could use to market themselves now. More than twice as forgiving than normal. Peter was just trying to calculate how much he should forgive. He wants Jesus, give me a number. Give me it could be a high number, it's fine, Jesus. Just give me a number and then I'll work toward that. That's okay. I can adjust. And like Peter, we want to limit the number of times we need to forgive. How many times should I forgive that person who's hurt me? How many times to to forgive? There, there, doesn't there come a point where it just needs to stop? If that person keeps on hurting me, there comes a point where I just can't let it go anymore. I have to protect myself. One of my favorite writers died this week, Frederick Buechner. He was 96. Christian writer. I always appreciated his his definition of forgiveness. And he said this, to forgive someone is to say one way or another, you have done something unspeakable. And by all rights, I should call it quits between us. Both my pride and my principles demand no less. However, although I make no no guarantees that I will be able to forget what you've done, and though we may both carry scars for life, I refuse to let it stand between us. I still want you for my friend. And Peter seems to be holding on to his pride and his principles because there's a limit. To how many times I can forgive. And there will come a time when I can righteously call it quits between us. Hurt me seven times and I'll forgive you. Eight times and you're not my friend anymore. But Jesus isn't just pronouncing a new law. And isn't dealing in numbers. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And some translations have 70 times 7, or 70 times 7 times, so that's about 490 times. And either amount is, we're not expected to, to calculate, to, to keep track. Okay, I've done 77, he's sinned against me 78, and now we're done. Either number is over the top of the standard amount. Either number is beyond calculating. Beyond keeping track, that's because forgiveness is not so much about mathematics, adding and subtracting and keeping ledgers. It's about mercy that's open and abundant. It's about a mercy that's uncalculating in its efforts to preserve relationship. We want to limit mercy, but Jesus calls us to an abundance of mercy because we have had an abundance of mercy. That leads us to the second the second um, way we try and get out of living like this, because it's hard, we try, I mean, we we don't forgive. We resort to not forgiving. And that's what the parable is all about. The unmerciful servant refused to forgive his fellow servant. And I, I love how how Jesus is over the top in every aspect of this, of this parable. He, he he says there Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He be, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 10,000 bags of gold is an astronomical sum. Historians have found that the entire gross domestic product of the, the province of Galilee in Roman times was 300 bags of gold. A whole province gets 300 bags of gold, so this debt is 33 times the GDP of the province in which they were living. So I looked it up. The province of Ontario, the GDP is 892 billion dollars, which you multiply by 33, because you know, 300 bags, 10,000 bags is 33 times more. So multiply our GDP by 33 and you get about $30 trillion. That's an astronomical amount of money for one person to owe to another person. Even a Russian oil tycoon doesn't have that kind of money. Jesus could just as easily have said, a man owed a king a bazillion dollars. Like it's that, that crazy a number. It's an absurd sum, over-the-top, hyperbolic, intended for us to think, now that's a guy who's got a problem. He's not going to solve that in a hundred lifetimes. It's it's interesting to note that the unforgiving servant didn't admit his inability to repay that amount. In fact, he said he'd pay it off. Give me time, I'll pay it off. Why didn't he say... Yeah, you got me. I'm over my head. I don't know what to do. I've been losing sleep. Here I am. Do whatever you want because I I got nothing. What kind of absurd pride and foolish self-confidence has him falling on his knees and begging, be patient with me. I'll pay everything back. As if you could pay back 33 times the GDP of your province if you just had a little bit more time. You know, if Jesus stopped the parable here, we could call this the parable of the foolish debtor. Who does he think he is? And this parable describes the profound debt we have before God and the complete lack of ability to pay it back. Our sin has devastated our ability to give anything back to God. It has left us deeply profoundly destitute, incapable of even conceiving of paying it back. And yet this debtor thinks he can solve his problem himself. And the listeners are with Jesus here. Who does he think he is? He's got nothing and he owes everything. And this extreme picture makes a point that no one can argue with. This guy is twisted if he thinks he can pay it back. And as we read further, we see this servant is even more twisted than we can imagine. Look at what happens next. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. He received mercy. The master deals with his unimaginable debt with unimaginable grace and outright cancels his debt. How rich does a master have to be to be able to forgive such a debt? God's grace is even more over the top than than we can ever imagine. It's the only thing that will solve the servant's problem. It's the shining truth of the gospel right here. My debt is great. God's grace is more. Imagine the weight off his shoulders as he walks out of that palace. Imagine him meeting his wife and saying, guess what, honey? We don't owe that money anymore. They walked out as free people. And yet, this man is unchanged by grace. Because on his way from the palace where he's been forgiven so much, he refused to forgive his fellow servant, who owes him a few months' worth of salary, a significant sum, but no way near what he has just been forgiven. He remains a twisted and tragic figure. And so we notice the parables between the two situations. Both of them have a debt or both of them have a debtor who asks the same thing, "Be patient with me, and I will pay you back." And we also notice the differences. One is the amount of debt. One is astronomical, the other is significant, but manageable. This guy could have paid it off. "Give me time. I'll, I'll pay it off in chunks, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll amortize it over a certain amount of time. But most importantly, the difference Jesus wants to highlight is the response of the debt holder. One is astronomically gracious. The other is profoundly not. One cancels the debt completely and gives freedom. The other is violent, grabbing the debtor by the throat and takes away freedom. One, man, or one sets the man up for renewal and transformation. The other devastates the man's life and sets him up for a life of grinding poverty and slavery. One reveals the gracious heart of God. The other reveals the prideful heart of sin. And, and the ones who notice this are the servants of the household. They, they, they see something twisted here. There's something. They're outraged. This is wrong. You can't just for, receive forgiveness and not th- be forgiving yourself. What... what What's this guy thinking? You can't experience a life-changing, transformative, over-the-top cancellation of debt and not do something even, you know, minimally for another person. It's just not right. And the other servants of them are the moral conscience, the, our moral conscience in this story. They understand mercy needs to be paid forward. They, they get it. And that takes us to the question the king first asks. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? The servant certainly thinks so. Otherwise, they wouldn't have reported this to the king. And the king certainly thinks so. Jesus certainly thinks so. And I know you think so. Because you know, mercy needs to be paid forward forgiveness needs to flow out of us. Grace needs to answer grace. And we, we know it's hard. Our pride gets in the way. The first servant never acknowledged his inability to pay it back. We, our pride can say, oh, I, yeah, I don't really owe much to God. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm good enough for God. We think we can offer God the right behavior, the right devotion, the right service, and thereby atone for our sins. Yet it took God himself to pay the astronomical price for our sins. Christ on the cross was the one and only sacrifice we need. And all we need to do is receive this gift with a believing heart. All we need to do is thank God for it and receive it. Our principles get in the way. We don't understand grace as well as we should. We want to set limits. We want to get off the hook for forgiving each other. We don't want to understand ourselves as forgiven people who are called to give forgiveness away and pay it forward. We hurt our spirits when we don't forgive. We don't need the king to throw us in jail because our spirits will be in imprisoned by lack of forgiveness. It reminds me of that old story of the prisoner of war who turned to the other prisoner and asked, have you forgiven your captors yet? I will never do that, the second one replied. And the response came back clear and true. Then they still have you in prison, don't they? There is freedom in forgiveness. When we pay mercy forward, we are set free. Now, we don't always understand forgiveness. I don't understand forgiveness as much as I should. It's hard to forgive the people who have deeply hurt us, profoundly hurt us. It's a process. It doesn't happen just like boom like that. It's a process. It takes time. It's not something you can demand of another person. I like how one pastor put it. Let me be clear, though. Forgiveness is not just getting over it. It's not pretending that some wrong did not occur, or forgetting that it happened, or acting like harm, the harm done is okay by condoning or excusing it. And it most certainly does not mean putting ourselves in positions where we continue to subject ourselves to harm. Seventy times seven is not meant to be a number of times which anyone must endure abuse at the hands of another. Rather, forgiveness is naming the offense and declaring that it should not be repeated. Forgiveness is also declaring that the offense will no longer take hold in our lives anymore. Forgiveness proclaims that mercy is what will define us. Forgiveness proclaims, is, proclaims that mercy is what will define us. It declares what Jesus is calling us into, mercy as a quality of our lives We don't do it well all the time. We'll make mistakes, and yet overall, we will live life in such a way that our life is marked by this quality. We will open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit who is working to get us this way, who transforms us along this way, and slowly the Holy Spirit will transform our anger, our outrage, our bitterness, our fear, our desire for revenge into love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit will lead us into a freedom we get nowhere else. Forgiveness, as Barbara Brown Taylor wrote, is God's cure for the deformity our resentments cause us. It is how we discover our true shape, and every time we do it, we get bet, uh, get to be a little more alive when we experience god's grace and mercy it works a transformational charge within us when we practice what jesus calls us into when we pay mercy forward and make it the quality of our life we will find a life we find nowhere else and paying it forward 77 times won't be enough Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, there are people in our lives who have hurt us. There are situations that we dwell on and that we cannot let go of. Lord, we, you know this about us. And yet you call us into a life that we can't imagine. Oh God, help us to see. And help us to live as Jesus calls us. Give us your Holy Spirit so that we can forgive others from the heart. Help us to know what forgiveness truly is and help us to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.